Uh, Charlene's going to read Psalm 110 for us, which is what Crystal Oglis will be preaching from this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Before we look at the text together, join me in a word of prayer. Lord, the scripture that we will look into in a few minutes speaks of your greatness, of your kingship, of your authority, of your power. And yet, Father, I know that there are numerous homes, numerous countries that are in disarray. And do not know your peace. They do not know the conquering power of Christ. Lord, we think of those. We pray for them. Father, I want to pray specifically this morning for each and every recipient of a food box that we had the privilege to share this Christmas. Father, there are dear families needing your help. I pray for them, Father. You know each face. You know each need. You know each cry of every heart. I ask, Father, that by your Spirit, you would be in and among those families. I pray, Father, that they would be reminded of who you are. I pray that they would be reminded of your power, of your kingship, of your authority. I pray that they would be reminded that there is help, there is hope, and there is truth in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we as a church remember them in prayer. We lift them up to you. 
we ask that you would care for them. Remind them that they have friends here at Kingsway. Remind them that there is a God who not only loves them, but gave his life for them. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time, the children, 5 to 11-year-olds, are released to children's ministry. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. I believe it's still fair and right for me to say Merry Christmas. By way of introduction, we have been looking at a number of Messianic Psalms through the month of December, which is appropriate for Christmas or the Advent season. And by way of introduction to this psalm, it has, as we read, parts to it that make radical claims about the coming Messiah ruler that the listeners will be forced to wrestle with and give response to. Secondly, it has parts to it that are some of the most quoted in the New Testament in terms of Psalms. So you will find yourself today moving with me through the New Testament. But it also has parts to it that apart from knowing Hebrew fluently, which I don't, and apart from taking a graduate level course in Hebrew poetry, which I haven't, I simply will not understand. Nevertheless, the parts that are clear are potent with the claims about the coming Christ that speak of his role as divine king, divine priest, and divine conqueror. And I pray they provoke us to action and response. So toward that end, for our scripture, please join me in a word of prayer. Father, your Holy Spirit was present and active when your servant David penned these words thousands of years ago. And he was present and active when your Son, our Savior, quoted them and declared his deity. And your word tells us that he is present here among us this very moment. We ask that he would move upon us, that these words which he breathed would inspire us to glorify your Son. Come upon us now, Father, by your Spirit. Cause us to think your thoughts. Cause our hearts to be set aflame with passion for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we explore this text, I wish to begin with an introductory question that I hope will posture us for this text. And the question is this. Is it right, is it appropriate, for a man or a woman to worship another man or a woman? Is it right, is it appropriate, for a man or a woman to worship another man or a woman? 
You might say, well, what do you mean by worship? For example, the old Anglican English wedding ceremony has the groom stating to the bride in a pledge of faithfulness these words. And you might actually like these. I take thee to be my wedded wife, and with all that I have and all that I am, I do thee worship and pledge thee my troth. The man speaking of his commitment to her, but also speaking about her value. Is such admiration and devotion appropriate? I think we would say, in light of the book of Ephesians and the way husbands are called to love their wives, there is room indeed for such devotion. And in fact, many marriages, I put my marriage first, could benefit more by such devotion. What about esteem and respect for one who is incredibly gifted, perhaps in music, perhaps intellectually? perhaps in sports, perhaps as a military leader who has given a daring and heroic sacrifice. Is it appropriate to say that person is stellar, that person is incredible, and to give them respect and honor? I think we would say that there is room for that. But is it right for a man or a woman to worship another human as a God, giving faith, giving trust, giving obedience to one. I think from a biblical perspective, we would say unequivocally, no, it is wrong. In fact, Old Testament teaching would tell us that such is blasphemy, rightfully worthy of stoning. To worship another human is undeniably wrong. Unless that human were also God. In our psalm today, David offers devotion, offers tribute, offers praise to a future coming ruler of Israel such that he walks the line of acclaiming he is deity. And David is well aware of the Old Testament law that says, you do not have any other gods before me. There is one God. He is the God of Israel. And yet David is making some very loud declarations. Declarations, if true, require the hearer's response. Look again at Psalm 110, if you have it open before you. It says, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and take until I make your enemies your footstool. David is making some very strong statements which we shall see are about the person and the nature of Christ. Declaration number one. He states that the coming ruler of Israel is a divine and majestic king. 
The coming ruler of Israel, the one to come, is a divine and majestic king. David begins the verse by saying, the Lord says to my Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, that means an oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. An oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. In essence, this psalm becomes a direct address from God to the king. A direct address from God to the king. It goes on to say this coming ruler who is king of God's people is not only great and mighty, not only majestic and sovereign, not only greater than the great King David, but he is indeed worthy of worship. Worthy of worship as he is seated at the right hand. Seated at the right hand of God. Such a position obviously is one of authority, royalty, honor, and power. And we dare not miss the glaring, if not startling point, that David prophetically calls this ruler his Lord. His Lord. The New Testament, including Jesus himself, grabs hold of these statements and uses them as pillars to speak about the nature and the person of Christ. And I want us to look at a couple of these passages. So if you will, hold your finger here and turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We'll start reading in verse 41. Matthew 22 Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Then he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, referring specifically to this verse, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I assume not. Talk about winning a debate. In essence, Jesus was made it clear that one far greater than David was speaking to them, though they didn't see it. Secondly, move over to Acts, please, 2. Acts chapter 2. Verse 29. We look at a scripture from the day of Pentecost where Peter is standing up in Jerusalem speaking to the crowd. And he says this, Acts 2, 29. 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Christ being a name for the anointed one of God to come. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. From that verse, David then makes this, excuse me, Peter then makes this declaration. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, being Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In no uncertain terms, Peter is making clear that this Jesus who was crucified and is king is the ruler to which David is referring. And interestingly, David declared this ruler hundreds of years before he came on the scene. Declaration 2. The coming ruler of Israel is an eternal high priest without equal. The coming ruler of Israel is an eternal high priest without equal. The priests in the Levitical priesthood were appointed and tasked with offering sacrifices for sins of the people on a continuous basis. There was no end to this, and the Levitical priests only covered sins. They couldn't do away with the sin. Verse 4 declares that this coming priest is far greater than the Levitical priesthood, for he was after the priest Melchizedek. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, and if you look in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this Melchizedek being of the order higher than the Levitical order. It speaks of him being a typology of a Christ, a Christ figure. It speaks of Christ here, that Christ is of the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, here we go back to the New Testament, capitalizes on this scripture and argues that this coming priest is indeed Jesus. So if you will hold your finger here and go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning with verse 9. And Jesus, being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of 
Melchizedek. Skip over to Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10. I had the most difficult time chopping away. I mean, I was ready to take us through three chapters of Hebrews because it talks about this incredible priesthood of Christ. And I thought, holy mackerel, let's just spend some hours going through. I got to chop away. Anyway, I put that out to you. Hebrews, start with about chapter 6 and just bask in 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and hear about this priest who in himself has done away with our sins. Anyway, lest I digress. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, let me say that again, for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sitting down at the right hand of God because it is finished. It is done No more sacrifice is necessary. His sacrifice is sufficient. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time who? Those who are being sanctified. Who is that? That's us. That's the believer. For by a single offering, what was the offering? His body, his life. By a single offering, he has perfected past tense. Good news. For all time. Those who are being sacrificed. Jesus, the high priest, the high priest of God, has made a perfect sacrifice, offering himself as the sacrificial lamb. That was predicated by the servant King David. That's the truth we are exploring. Declaration number three. The coming ruler of Israel is the sovereign conqueror to whom all will bow. The coming ruler of Israel is the sovereign conqueror to whom all will bow. One day, we will see all things put under his feet. One day, we will see all things in subjection to him. We don't see that now. Now, if you are here as a believer, or if you are here as a friend of Christianity, these truths are probably very acceptable to you. But if you are here as an agnostic, or an atheist, or of the Jewish faith, or a Muslim, first of all, welcome. But perhaps you have some pushback on these truths. And I would want to invite you to consider the truths of the Scripture written hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, speaking about this person 
of Jesus. And I invite you to consider who he is. The scripture teaches that one day this ruler will come. He will shatter the kings of the earth. All things will be in subjection to him. The New Testament agrees with that and makes that clear. So my question for us this day is this. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to see him face to face? Are you ready to receive your coming king? As we think about him, the scripture reminds us, he is not only the king who is owed our worship, to whom our worship is due, but he's also the king that has made our worship possible. Apart from his work, we would not be freed to worship him. But because of his work, we are free. We are given the right to be his children. Because of his invitation, we have the privilege of coming near him. If you were to think about the greatness of a king in all his splendor, in all his glory, I don't know what comes to mind. I don't know what movie comes out where you've looked at a great sovereign. But generally in those movies, generally in those stories, a great sovereign does not spend his days with just the commoners because he's a king. Nor does a commoner just drift into the presence of a great king. It doesn't happen. The only way, and certainly in biblical times, that a commoner would come into the presence of a king is by sovereign invitation. So, brother or sister, if you sit here today as a Christian, knowing the truth about your king, it is because he has given you personal invitation. He has called you by name. Without question, he is due our worship. Without question, Scripture declares that these declarations speak of him. My question for us is, have you made them your own? Have you made them your own and have you surrendered to them? Do you have confidence in them? As I was going through the book of Hebrews, it talks about having confidence in these truths. My questions for us are this. Do you have confidence that this Christ, as a great high priest, has freely made a way for you to come before the presence of the Father? Let me say that again. Do you have confidence that this Christ as a great high priest, has freely made a way for you to come before the presence of the Father, clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Or is there some other way by which you attempt to come to Him? Is there some other reasoning by which you would say, if I can just do this righteous deed, 
be this kind person, do these good works, perhaps there can be some acceptance of God by me. That's not confidence in the sacrifice of Christ. Do you have confidence that you are free from the penalty of sin? Or is there this small, perhaps persistent, lingering guilt that just comes after you that says, yes, but, and points that finger in your face saying, no, you know your sin. Hebrews calls us to a question. Do you have confidence in the sacrifice of Christ that you've been freed from the penalty of sin, washed by his word, and now able to bring pleasing worship to him? Ultimately, are you free? Do you know you are free to approach him? Do you know that you can come to him as his son or daughter? Now, if you know the truth of that, if you would say yes to those questions, if you understand and have confidence in those things, first of all, thanks be to God. But secondly, verse 3 of our text teaches that if you have confidence in those things, then there's a response you will make. Look at verse 3. It says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Your people will offer themselves freely freely to him in recognition of his power. If you have confidence in the things of Christ, you will offer yourself freely to him. But what does that mean? What does it mean that this morning we will offer ourselves freely to him? Well, No wonder I'm going to take my cues on this from the book of Hebrews. It says a number of things. Three to be what I'm going to offer you. But when we offer ourselves freely, Hebrews 10.22 says this, Since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us draw near with a true heart. If you know the truth of Christ, then let's respond by drawing near and offering ourselves freely. Regardless of where you are, regardless of what you have done, like the prophetic word that we heard this morning, by faith, take steps to draw near to God. If you are distant from God, it only takes one action. Turn and by faith step towards him. Not based on your merit, but based upon his priestly sacrifice. By faith, offer yourself afresh to God.
Secondly, what does offering ourselves look like? Hebrews 10.23, hold fast to his promise. Hold fast to his promise. 10.23 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Many of us, if not most of us, will go through great times of testing. Those tests will come in different ways. There will be times where you, if you haven't yet, you will one day feel like giving up. I give up regularly. But thanks be to God, God does not give up. Thanks be to God, he continues to come and to revive my soul as is his promise. Don't give up. Keep on going. Hear the words from John Piper. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature of man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism, slander or sickness, it wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. Don't say it's meaningless. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. Take these truths day by day and focus upon them. Circumstances do not define our life. What Christ did on the cross defines our life. Friends, let's offer ourselves to God by holding fast to his promise. Let's offer ourselves to God by drawing near through faith. And finally, Hebrews 10.24, let's offer ourselves to God by considering how we might stir and be stirred up for the honor of God. Consider how we might stir and be stirred up for the honor of God. 10.24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It doesn't just say, let us stir one another up. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In light of his majesty, light of his sacrifice, we're called to stir one another up to love and good works. So my question for us is this. Who stirs you up? What stirs you up? Who do you stir up to love and good works? How have you been stirred up? Let's consider. And to jog our thinking, I've written down a few things that have stirred up my heart 
to love and good works. Firstly, by hearing the truth of God spoken and read by people like Charlene and other readers who rehearse and stand up and clearly read the word of God to us, whether it's a Sunday morning or public event. I'm stirred up by experiencing the nearness of God and fellowship of the Spirit by people who set out to lead us in worship, like Gary, like Jeremy, like Bruce, Matthew, who faithfully lead us into the presence of God. I'm stirred up. Thank you for your service. I'm stirred up by hearing the work and the testimony of gratefulness from those who have experienced the help of the food bank. And by their lives, they give themselves to helping others. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your examples. Thank you, Smith family, Dingwell family, and others who give your lives to this. I'm stirred up by that. Thank you, community group leaders who regularly seek to care for, nurture, stir up, and promote us to love and good works. I'm stirred up by your example. I'm stirred up by your giving. Thank you. Thank you for those who are committed to prayer, who seek to promote prayer, who seek to participate in prayer and other things in the church, albeit at times during continuous chronic pain. Thank you for your example, Floyd. Thank you for your example, Fabian, Jim. Thank you that through your pain, you continue to honor the Savior. You stir my heart. Friends, by these, by many, many, many other things that I haven't said, let's consider how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. We are called in light of his majesty to offer ourselves afresh to him. Can I ask you to close your eyes and to bow your head? I want to ask you to consider how is God calling you right now to offer yourself afresh to him in light of his majesty in light of his priesthood in light of his sacrifice and in light of his coming reign how is he calling you to give yourself to him How is he calling you to serve him? To worship him? Is there anything that you have allowed to take residence in your heart that exalts itself against King Jesus? Perhaps a thought, perhaps a lust. Perhaps a lack of trust. I encourage you now in your heart to look to Jesus.
hear him calling you to come and fall before him in worship. To experience his forgiveness. And to live for his kingly glory. Father, thank you for the privilege of being your people. Thank you that we have an eternal hope of a promised ruler who will rule with justice, who will rule eternal, and who we will worship forever. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in our lives. We ask that you would take our lives, use them to promote your great glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.